Satriakal, Namaste, hello and welcome to the Truth Tribe Show. I'm your host Ravi Tur, and today is a special day for us. We are discussing food, entrepreneurship, and life of an immigrant with our very special guest, Mr. Vikram Vij. Sir, welcome to the show. Namaste, Satriakal, Adab, uh, Shalom, and everybody. So looking forward to sharing my journey and my past and our future goals with all of you listeners. I'm super excited to learn all that. So for those of you who don't know Mr. Vikram Vij, uh, first of all, I don't know how you would not know about him, but for those who don't, he's an Indian-born Canadian chef, a cookbook co-author, and a television personality. He's the co-owner of the world-renowned Indian restaurant Vij's in Vancouver, British Columbia. His restaurant has been named as one of the top restaurants in Canada. Not only that, New York Magazine has labeled his restaurant as one of the finest Indian restaurants in the world. I was there not that long ago, so I can totally vouch for that. In 2014, Mr. Vij was announced as a Dragon investor on the Canadian reality show Dragon's Den for its ninth season. He was born in India in Amritsar. He left India to study hotel management in Austria. While there, he received his chef's training. He later became a certified sommelier. You are the co-author of several cookbooks. Your book, Elegant and Inspired Indian Cuisine, won several awards, including Cuisine Canada's Gold Award for Best Cookbook. Vidges at Home, Relax Honey, was placed second in the Best Indian Cuisine in the World category at the 2010 Gourmand World Cookbook Awards. You have received numerous awards for your hard work, dedication. Just to list off a few, you were named Chef of the Year by Vancouver Magazine in 2015. You received an Earnest and Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and you've been one of the recipients of the Top 25 Canadian Immigrant Awards. You can find his restaurant in Vancouver on Camby and 15th Street, and you can find him online at vijas.ca, which is V-I-J-S.ca. Super excited to chat with you, sir, and learn from you. To start off our conversation, though, in your own words, who are you and what do you do? I'm um, Chef Vikram Vij. I was born in Amritsar um, at a young age. I wanted to actually be a Bollywood actor. I wanted to be a stage actor. And in India, your parents tell you what to do and you have to follow that. And at somewhere around 16 or 17, my father sat me down and said, I know you love acting. I know like, you love drama. I know love. you think that you're going to be an actor but I'm not going to allow you to become an actor. I don't believe in that principle. I don't believe in that profession. I don't believe what they do. So go find something else for yourself to do. And I was, okay, what do I do? So I loved food. I loved people. And at the age of 19, I had the opportunity, I applied to this school in Austria, which um, and a lot of other schools I applied to for hotel management and to become a chef. And everybody came back and said, no, you don't speak French and you don't speak this and you don't speak that. And had a lot of issues there. Uh, but then one of the schools, which was in German, in Austria, uh, in Salzburg, uh, wrote back and said, if you go and take this course, the minimum basic learning of German, we will accept you. And sure enough, I showed that paper to my parents and I said, this is what I want to do. And I went to, to the school and I studied German for three months in Pune at this Max Müller Bhavan place in Pune and showed them the certificate that I had done my, my German training. And they, they asked me to come in September for this course to start. 
And you have to understand, you may say that you speak German. It's being in India. Yes, you go to school and you speak a little bit of English. But imagine if you had suddenly thrown in to a foreign country that only speaks German and the schooling was in German and the classes were in German, they spoke was in German. So it was a little bit of an eye opener for me to realize that, oh, I actually don't speak German. I think I spoke German, but I don't speak German. It was a very humbling experience because I came from India where my dad was middle class, upper middle class. You were treated really well. We had servants in India and all that stuff. And then you suddenly come to Austria and you don't speak a word of the language. You're brown. Everybody else is white and French and German and Austrian and European in that sense. But the survival instinct of an immigrant is very strong. And I managed to stay there and stick around through all the hardships and learn the language very quickly. I managed to speak German and, and the journey started of becoming a chef. And it's been a very interesting journey. And uh, I'm sure it, it continues, the path continues. That's wonderful stories, and I'm sure we'll cover a lot of those aspects. So just to start off our conversation, when you think about your childhood, as it relates to food, what is your most favorite memory that comes to your mind? Who are you with? What are you doing? And what does that remind you of? I think I have lots and lots of great food memories. Born Barabinamits, the Dabas, the small little roadside stands, Going with my father to the market to buy freshest of the vegetables, going with my grandfather to buy vegetables in the morning, sitting in a rickshaw. And a, a daily thing for us in India to do as a young child, what else do you do? It's very fascinating today. I think it shapes you from the time when you see your you know, grandfather haggling over 25 cents of, of uh, the tomatoes that he's buying or your dad haggling over something and, and just constantly this business acumen to have. Memories are beautiful. But one of the memories that I remember going up in Harmandar Har Sahib, going to the Golden Temple and walking on the Golden Temple, it was packed, it was, it was crazy. And this is just before 1984, the Blue Star operation. And as a Hindu, my, my grandmother would always take me to the Harmandar Sahib in the morning and then take me to the Hindu temple afterwards. And she believed in that we all belong together and we are all equal. And I remember after that day, going to have a puri chole at, at a lassi in, in one of the dhabas. And it, it broke my heart because very soon after that, Amritsar was shattered with all the, with the violence and everything that was happening. But I remember one of those memories of going to the Harmandar Sahib and then having the langar there and then coming outside and going to the mandir and then coming out and going to a dhaba and having this delicious puri chole with lassi. And all that changed because it was in old Amritsar, very close to the Golden Temple. And then it was cordoned off completely and things went not so good for a few years. And then I had left India to come to Austria to become a chef. This is in 1984, I'm talking about the year Indra Gandhi had uh, attacked the, the Golden Temple. The, the Golden Temple, yeah. 
the Blue Star operation. So it was very touching. It was very tough because I was in Amritsar during that time. And it was just so sad. And so those are those memories that I think about. But they also make you resilient. They also make you tough. And they also make you who you are today. Yeah, that was a dark period for Amritsar, 1984, and then the years that followed after that. But as you said, the beauty of Amritsar and, and beauty of India in general is for everybody to coexist, whether you're Hindu, whether you're Sikh, whether you're whatever religion, to be in the same space, share that space. And I love that piece of that you, that you talk about haggling, because my grandma used to do the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter what it is, you never pay the full price. So that was one of the biggest lessons for me when I came to Canada. They were, oh, you have to pay full price. Yeah. And I, yeah, so I, that's, that's I still do that. I still do that. I was just in Calgary and I was somewhere and I was, oh, I was haggling with that person and my partner, she was, why are you haggling? And I said, it's just second nature of mine. She was laughing so hard. She was, but she's also one of those people who loves to get a great deal. She's looking for that sale. If she's buying something, she's always laughing and gets a great deal. But so it's inherent in that sense. Yeah, 100%. So a question on that. How do you, or what is your definition of successful and who do you consider successful? I think success to me is somebody recognizing you for the work that you have done. It's not the amount of money that you have in the bank account. Of course, that matters. But what really matters is when somebody looks at you and says, he changed the way Indian food is perceived or we just changed the way Indian food is perceived in North America. And that to me is extremely important and leaving a legacy behind. When somebody says, looks around and says, oh, he was the first Indo-Canadian dragon, which was a big deal. But on the other hand, it also means that I inspired younger entrepreneurs, younger people who were out there to say, if a blind cook Vikram Vinch can become a dragon one day, so can I. And so to me, that is very important. That is success. When somebody looks at you and says, thank you very much. We had a delicious meal uh, at your restaurant. Or somebody says, well, service was great. You really embodied uh, the true essence of Indian hospitality into your food. That to me is success. To be loved for who you are and what you've done. That is success. Money comes and goes. But being that person that people says, oh, he mentored me or he helped me or he got me where I am. I was so lost and he helped me. And I think that is what true success is in life because you're not going to take the money with you, but you're going to leave legacies behind. People are going to remember you. And it's no different than if you said, my aunt used to do this. My uncle used to do this. My grandfather used to do this. Those are legacies that they've left. It doesn't have to be always work legacies. They can be just emotional legacies, you know, legacies that you had an uncle or an aunt that supported you throughout. My mamas and my mommies were my uh, people who I remembered fondly and say, oh, this is mama used to do this and this mama used to do this. And who I am today, I'm shaped because of them. Or my bua used to do this, or she used to make this pickle, or she used to make this almond badam achar, and all those things. That's to me is what success is. That's that memory, that legacy is what success is to me. That's beautifully said. And I love that one part as well. It's how you were the first Indo-Canadian dragon. You make others believe that this is possible, Correct. that this could be done. Before I move on to the next part, what is one culinary tradition that you think should be known worldwide that isn't right now? As an Indian tradition, I think 
the biggest trait that I, I tell people to have is to use your hands when you eat Indian food. When you take that roti and you mop up that sauce or that achar or that pickle and you put it in your mouth and you go this, that feeling of having this beautiful flavors of food and spices in your mouth through your hands, I, I think is the best tradition that we can impart to the rest of the world to use your hands when you're eating food. Because when you eat food with your hands, it's a proven fact that there, there is it's this beautiful <clears throat> feeling of nostalgia. You, you start respecting that vegetable. You respect that chicken. You, if there's one thing that I would say is to use your hands when you eat food. Just use your hands. It doesn't have to be all the time, but if there is something there, don't be so hypochondriac and not use your hands when you're eating food. Yeah, 100%. I could agree to that, especially when people are eating meat with bone in it. And the reason, one of the reasons why we call lamp popsicles at midges is because I thought I wanted people to pick up the bones and just gnaw at it. And... Let's move over to your journey in Austria, where you started your hotel management. What were those initial days? You were super young when you were there. Can you walk me through those first few years? <clears throat> 1984, you leave India and I've never sat on a plane before. And the first time I ever sat on a plane was a flight from Bombay to Frankfurt and from Frankfurt to Salzburg. And I still remember this day, super nervous, scared as hell. And the air hostess comes in and says to me, put on your seatbelt. And I'm like, what's a seatbelt? Because in India, <laughs> we didn't have seatbelts in our cars. We just jumped into the car. We never had seatbelts. So landing there in Frankfurt, completely lost. Everything was in German. Just had the, the number and the gate number. Scared as hell. Crazy as hell. Finally get to Austria. Finally get to Salzburg after hours and hours of uh, being scared. But there was no place to stay because I thought, I had a place that was reserved by a cousin of mine, but it didn't happen. So I put my bag somewhere and I walked around and knocking on people's door and said, can I just have a room for one day? Can I have a room for one day? Anyway, finally managed to get the place. And my story is no different than most immigrant stories. It's no different than that person that came to Brampton or that person that came to Mississauga or that person that came to Edmonton or... Immigrant stories are all pretty much the same, which starts at the point where they had nothing, got themselves together. But I think the worst part for me was I didn't speak a word of German at the time when I got there, which meant I was completely lost. So when the school started, you're sitting there for eight hours a day in the school and you don't understand a word of it. And it would be no different than if a Punjabi is going to an English medium school and they haven't studied in there. When, if you look at some of the immigrants that came in 1930s and 40s, hats off to them in British Columbia or in Toronto or in Canada or anywhere else in Canada, Nova Scotia, the Punjabis that came from India, from their pins, those ladies that came, are the aunties that work in the kitchen today, who barely speak that language. You and I have the advantage. I went to an English medium school. You went to, I can see that you went to an English medium school. 
whether you're in Ludhiana or in Patiala or anywhere else. But we went to school. English medium, English was part of our repertoire. We studied it. We studied everything in English. Correct. But imagine those Indians in the 1930s and 40s and 60s that came that didn't speak a word of English. They had never studied. They had no idea. And to come here and be successful by farming, by sheerly working hard, puts my journey a little bit quieter. It, it humbles you to think about it. So being in Austria at that time, without speaking the language, was very tough to go to school. And the good part was I had learned how to completely, I had a photographic memory. So if I looked at something in on paper and and I read it, and I kept reading it over and over again, I would memorize the whole thing. So the best part of it was I had this photographic memory. So if, if the question was asked something and I would recognize one or two words in it, I would write the whole thing down. It, it was called mugging. We mugged the whole chapters, basically. Yeah. So that was an advantage to us to study and manage to learn. But the prejudice against us Indians that we were brown and that we weren't allowed to make main courses, for example, was very hard because you had come from an upper middle class family and now you were being treated as a little bit, oh, you're not as good. But then you overcome it. You overcome it by sheerly working hard. You overcome it by sheerly uh, showing off that, that you can work hard. And it was definitely an eye opener after a year saying, oh, shit. And there was two, you crossed a fork and after a year, either the school sent you back because you weren't doing that well, or you worked hard to stick around and see what happens. So we were around probably 30 of us that started the school in the hotel management. And by the time I think we passed, there was only seven or eight of us that passed. And only two or three of us are still in the restaurant business rest of them all gave it up because it's a tough business. It's a tough business for being on in the kitchen or being an entrepreneur. So it is tough. So those early days were extremely confused. Am I doing the right thing? Do I have this aptitude? Do I want to do this? Can I do this? Can I do this in a foreign country? Can I survive in a foreign country? But then as years go by, two years go by, three years go by, then you're, yeah, you feel the confidence. Okay, I'm, I'm getting by. I can do this. So after five and a half years, I got an opportunity to come to Banff and work at the Banff Springs Hotel, which is beautiful, gorgeous. And I haven't looked back since then. Banff was beautiful and then came to Vancouver in 1994, Bridges first opened. So 10 years after I had left India, having studied for three years and worked for another six years, I was ready to open up my own place up. And my dad was in, in Bombay at the time, and I asked him to come and help me to open up a restaurant. And he came with cash in his pocket. And we first opened a small 23-seat restaurant on West Broadway in Granville. And it was, it was a little electric stove. It was called Cafe Arabia. It was actually an Arabic restaurant. And I didn't have the money okay. 
to, to flip it to an Indian restaurant. So I had four burner stove, electric stove. So I would make the dish up. I would put it on the pass and then I would turn around and give it a little wipe and then serve it. It was a one man show. And then my parents would come from Richmond around 3.30 or 4 o'clock and they would help me wash dishes and clean because I didn't have enough time to do all that stuff. Today, people look at it and say, you're successful and you've done this well and you've done this part, but the path to get there uh, has been riddled with lots of ups and downs and stresses and arguments and fights and discussions and loss of things and loss of friendships and loss of relationships, loss of lots of other stuff. So any entrepreneur out there will know that in order to have achieved something, you don't see the amount of hard work that goes behind it, those late nights. And I'm sure you heard what happened last Tuesday uh, at Ridges and it was very hurtful. Um, but you have to believe in the democracy. You have to believe in the equality. You have to believe in the fact that this is what you need to do for the next generation. You have to be there for them. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I was reading about your parents' support that you had, and there was a story where your mother was bringing the dishes. They were cooking it in Richmond, and they, they were taking the bus to bring the food to the restaurant. So that support, doing that day in, day out, just speaks volumes about the hardships that you guys have went through to be where you are today. Yeah, some of the stories we talk about, we only had one car in the Jeddah. So in the morning, I would open up, I would go to Costco because that was the cheapest place I could buy the milk for the chai. That was the cheapest place I could find the butter and, and the vegetables and the ghee and everything else. So we would go to Costco and load up the car and the car literally used to be this because everything was in the trunk and the front wheels were almost like barely getting any traction because <laughs> it was so full of stuff. And then to come and unload the car and my mom would go home and make the chicken curry in the afternoon after her nap and stuff like that, and then bring this pot of fresh chicken curry from Richmond to the restaurant with a little pot. And she didn't tell me for the longest time that everybody on the bus would make fun of her because here is this 411, an Indian woman who barely speaks the language, has a pot of chicken curry between her legs and the whole bloody bus smelt of Indian food. Again, you're talking about 1994, you have to understand the, the visual of it. That is there, but the love for their son, love for their child to see him successful was so important that she would make the chicken curry. And my father as well, he would come and he would taste the food and he would say, no, this is this or this is that. And why don't you make the large one this or why don't you make it this way? And I would say to him, no, no, this works. This works. This is good Rajma. I know it's tasty. I've tasted it. And he wanted to just do traditional because he came from that level of, he just wanted to serve butter chicken and chicken tikka masala. And I said, Papa, we need to be different. We need to create different foods, different style of food. We started creating Vijay's style of food, but slowly instead of doing falafels, we put samosas on there. Instead of doing chicken shawarma, we started doing chicken curry on there. So slowly after two, three months, 
because I didn't have the cash to shut it down completely. And then one weekend on a Friday, I decided. So once we shut down, I brought everything down and I called it Vidyus. So when people came on Monday, they were, oh, it was an Arabic <laughs> restaurant called Cafe Arabia. But I was still there. The room looked really cute, very pretty. And um, because I worked all weekend to make it really pretty, I have that eye for the detail. And people were, okay. And then a food writer came in and tasted my mom's chicken curry and loved it. And she wrote a beautiful review. And here we are, 30 years down the road. We'll be celebrating 30 years of Vigis in 2024. That's, that's special. So congratulations to you and the family for that. Thank you. It's 30 years of hard work. Um, so question on that. When you first started Vigis, what was your vision behind it? What did you want to accomplish through through your restaurant? I wanted people to be aware of the fact that our cuisine, because I'd studied French cooking and German cooking and Italian cooking, I wanted to be treated equally. I wanted to say to people that my food and my cuisine is as complex as any other cuisine out there. Do not treat me that I'm ethnic or I'm little less expensive or cheaper. And it really used to bother me that people would come in and say they were okay to pay $12 for a steak, but they were not okay to pay $12 for a chicken curry or a lamb curry. Even though the love behind the food between a delicious lamb curry or a goat meat curry or a chicken curry is far more than just throwing a steak on the grill. And it really used to bother me. I needed to elevate the cuisine. I needed people to understand that my cuisine was as complex as any other cuisine. So that was the goal of Vijis. That's why we never called it Cuisine of India or Taj Mahal or anything else. We called it Vijis because it's, you come to my house. This is the food I've cooked for you. You're going to enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, that's okay. I understand that as well. So that was what the focus was to bring awareness to the cuisine and the culture of my country of birth. But in a country of where I live now, I wanted, so I really believe this, that people should eat food from different parts of the world during the week. One day they should eat Vietnamese, then Italian, then Chinese, then Canadian, then Indian. Eat food from different parts of the world. Because when you eat food from different parts of the world, you build tolerances towards each other. You learn to respect each other. You learn to understand each other. And that is very important to understand, to respect that. Music. Don't listen to always the same kind of music. Listen to Bhangra. Listen to Spanish. Listen to Italian. Listen to something else. Listen to opera. Listen to different music genres so that you can actually build yourself towards it. And it's because... I really believe in democracy. I really believe in equality. I really want everybody to be treated with the same respect and love. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your orientation is or your religion is. We need to respect everyone. And I think that has been the fundamental goal of mine. Very well said. We try to do that. We have Taco Tuesdays and pizzas on Fridays and just be versatile with it. And to your point, the food of a country tells you a lot about the people Correct. and how they live and then how they operate. And I was just in I was just in, in Croatia 
And I realized how Mediterranean and beautiful that country is and the style of the food and the mixture of the cultures and the, they went through a really tough time for a few mm-hmm. years, but now it's just so beautiful. And I, it, it shows that people can come together and be with each other if we, we work towards it. Hundred, hundred percent. Croatia is definitely on my list, so hopefully one day I get to go there. So a follow-up question on that, sir. How do you define your culinary philosophy? My culinary philosophy is an Indian village, a little bazaar in Indian village at seven o'clock in the evening. <coughs> one farmer grows onions, the other one has cilantro. Somebody has carrots. Somebody has tomatoes. They all come together in a bazaar in the evening. You walk through the bazaar. And you buy a little bit of the chicken, you buy a little bit of the chilies, you buy a little bit of the dhania, you buy a little bit of the onions, and you put it all together. So my culinary philosophy is buy and eat what is in your backyard, what is available to you, drink wines from here, eat food that has been grown by the local farmers, make wine from the local, and create a beautiful dish. And don't fall into the category of this is the way it should be. If you get and it tastes good, who cares? That's all that matters. And that is the most fundamental rule of philosophy that I have is to be true to yourself and to your mind. So... You touched on it. One of the things that we get to hear a lot these days is sustainable food practices. What are your views on that? I think you have to be careful in when you say sustainable food practices because you have to learn that a farmer that's in your backyard that is growing squash or vegetable should be supported. And if you have to pay a little bit more for that sustainable food practices, then you should pay more for it. You shouldn't be always looking for cheap food. Good food is not meant to be cheap. So it's very important to respect that farmer, that fisherman, that person who's purveyed the food for you. And I think cuisines are meant to be rivers. They're meant to constantly flow and change. So just because you used to have Chole Bature in India in a certain manner doesn't mean you're going to have the same Chole Bature here. The chickpeas are different. The water is different. The masala is different. The dough is mixed. So just respect the food that's in front of you and enjoy that rather than anything else. Yeah, yeah. So Indian food is so diverse, right? You go north to south, east to west, so many flavor profiles. How do you go about creating and crafting your menu? You play with different spices. You say, okay, I do a dish from Northern India, then I'll do someone on the Southern India. So using more of coconut milk, using a little bit more of the fish curry. You just come up with it. Asking a musician, what style of genre do you play? You just have such a huge repertoire. The the notes are the same. The notes are exactly the same. The cumin, the coriander, the cloves, the cinnamon, the ginger, the garlic, those are all the same. What is different is how you create that music. So the dishes that we have created is created by us at the restaurant by not just following anything, just figuring it out, you know, that's the beauty of it. That's why I don't know what you had for dinner at Midges. Do you you remember? I had 
I had lamb popsicle and my wife had, but I had lamb popsicle. So she had a vegetarian dish is what I know. <laughs> I, I think she had a thali. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just saying is that just, that's the part. You came to Vijay's and you had lamb popsicles. You can't get them anywhere else. Nobody else makes them with that sauce and the potato and the spinach and everything else. So that's what we want to do is that philosophy. Of, it's not one way. It's not that butter chicken or that jalfrezi or blah, blah. It's just that's the way it's cooked. I have a question for you in terms of upcoming Indian chefs. Are there any upcoming Indian chefs within Canada that one should look out for? Or are there any other favorite Indian restaurants that you would recommend? There are lots of great Indian chefs that are uh, coming along. But one of them that comes to my mind is a young boy in Toronto called Mahir Shetty. He owns a restaurant called Curryish. And him and I have cooked together and he does really modern Indian food with Indian style and Indian spices. He's originally from Bombay and he's created this beautiful restaurant called Karish. I've eaten there myself. Big fan of that. Pakka is doing a great job. I don't know any physical other chefs who are physically actually doing their own thing. But uh, Mahir is somebody who I think will be the next Vikramvij of Canada for sure. So question on that, in terms of cooking, our Indian cooking surrounds around a lot of use of spices and all kinds of spices. If you could only use one spice within your cooking, which one would it be and why? (laughs) I think the only spice that you really need in Indian cooking is called mother's love. A mother's love uh, can be cooked just with salt or with pepper or with turmeric and coriander and cloves and cinnamon and ginger and garlic and all those things. So I would say mother's love is, or a love is the most important ingredient in any cooking. It doesn't matter whether it's Indian or any world cuisine. That sort of leads me into your cookbooks. So you have, correct me if I'm wrong, about four different cookbooks that you've released so far. I actually have one of them with me and I've been whipping out some recipes out of that. Can you walk me through with the objectives behind these cookbooks and what goes into designing them? Uh, What kind of planning goes into it? The total, we have total of three cookbooks. And one is an autobiography of my journey of my life coming to India. The first one is called Vijay's Elegant and Inspired Indian Cuisine. And those are all the recipes that Miru wrote for all the restaurants of the of the Vijay's restaurant. The second one is called uh, Relax Honey. And the third one is called Vijay's Our Cherished Recipes. And that's a cookbook for, that Miru wrote during our time of separation, but also the recipes that were created by me and her and mostly her for our for the kids basically so the first one is the restaurant second one is a little bit more relaxed and then the third one is predominantly for the kids and the autobiography is based on my journey of coming from austria from india to austria and from austria to canada and creating this food empire and bringing indian food to the forefront and the challenges that wages have faced over the years and what has gone wrong and what has gone right. My follow-up question to that is, and if you're comfortable talking about it, I know just a couple of days ago, you had to close the doors of your restaurant, My Shanti, which has been a staple in the community for more than a decade now. 
Can you walk me through the journey of Mashanti and what sort of emotions run through you when you have to close the doors of your restaurant? So I had said to myself that by the time I'm 50, I will have five projects under my belt, one for each decade of my life. So uh, 2014, Mashanti was created, Mashanti by Vikram, which means my piece by Vikram, which was recipes that were predominantly mine. um i had created them what i felt was what was needed miru ran the kitchens at vijas and i ran the the kitchen at mashanti after 10 years i realized that i needed to focus back on to vijas and just stay at vijas and create you know a hype about it Vijas is very still very relevant, very uh, uh, well respected and loved in the community, and so was my Shanti. To be honest with you, it was very well loved and respected. But the time had come for me to regroup myself a little bit and focus. Now that I'm going to be sixty this year, I wanted to start fine tuning all these things and give up things that were not relevant to me because I wanted to just. focus on myself and my new relationships after 10 years the lease was coming up and my partner and I had a conversation and said it's time for us to let it go and just focus on Vijas I had moved downtown it was definitely an emotional moment because it was so personal for me and the recipes and the kitchen staff that I had created was amazing but sometimes you have to let go of things in order to open other doors and this was one of them that i needed to shut that down so that i could just focus on vijas and create vijas style of you know of the food so my follow up is around the restaurant industry then a restaurant industry has been through a major shift during pandemic and post pandemic as well if you were to make any changes let's say three in this case whether from an operator standpoint or a consumer standpoint what changes would you like to see personally i think that high end specific style of restaurants big restaurants is out now people want small people want boutique people don't mind paying a little bit more but the owner should be present he or she should be there at the restaurants to explaining what their vision is and i think that's what we're going to do with vijas is that we're going to tone it down in a sense of vikram vijas present he's talking about this dish and he created it. the original vijas where in 1994 96 when it started was that personalized style of the food and i think that's where the industry is heading this super high end super high end cocktails and menu and all that stuff is slowly changing and it's becoming a uh, more uh focused on chef oriented rather than just having five restaurants or six restaurants so if you look at Jamie Oliver for example he used to have so many of these mm-hmm. restaurants he shut all those down and now he has his own restaurant called Jamie Oliver just like that so i think that's where we are going towards is chef based individual restaurants interesting so more people go there for a full on experience correct throughout your career i'm sure there's many of them but if you have to categorize one as the highest moment of your career so far which one would that be and why 
We've had so many moments. I've had so many moments when Pierre Elliott Trudeau walked into the restaurant. But last Tuesday, it's so funny that we're talking about this. <coughs> the true sense of democracy needed to be explained, which was uh, our prime minister, who's a legally appointed prime minister called Justin Trudeau. He was at Vidya's for dinner, having a quiet meal with his chief of staff, Katie, and me. And we were just having a conversation. And while we were having a conversation at around 9, 9.30, a lot of the protesters walked into the restaurant and heckled him a little bit and gave him a little hard time and gave me a little hard time. The F words were used and, and things were used against me, whereas I had nothing to do with it other than the fact that I'm a democratic restaurant and anybody is allowed and everybody's allowed to come into the restaurant and have a nice meal and enjoy their solitude. It doesn't matter. We at Vidya's serve people from all walks of life. We don't serve people for their beliefs. We serve food to people. It doesn't matter whether you're a prime minister or a, a teacher or a nurse or a janitor or anything else. We at Vidya's serve people democratically and respectfully and not because of certain beliefs of the people when they come into the restaurant. That is not my role. That is not my goal. And <clears throat> we serve food. We serve experience. We serve wine to every single individual human being. And a true democracy is that to allow people to express themselves of who they are. And I felt a little bit violated that people had walked into my house, into my restaurant and, and disturbed the other patrons who were spending their hard earned money at the restaurant. They did not get the experience of Vidges because of few elements. So that to me was a, a very shaking moment. And it happened last Tuesday at the restaurant. Yeah, that's truly uncalled for. And the role of food is to bring people together, right? That's the role that food plays, uh, not to separate them into different categories. Uh, let's shift gears and, and talk about your journey at Dragon's Den. You were the first person of Indian origin to be representing not just yourself and your brand, but the broader community as well. How big of a responsibility was it? How was your experience there? There were two elements to it. One was <clears throat> they wanted me to dress up in, in a non-Indian kind of a clothing and I wanted to dress up Indian clothing. I stood my ground and I said, no, I'm going to wear Indian clothes. So if you look at that, I'm wearing my achkan and my pants and my shoes with no socks on, wearing a lot of jewelry and everything else. So it's very Indian of me to allow that because normally they would have people who dress up bankers. Basically. But to me, more important was that I was able to inspire people and young chefs or young cooks or those line cooks or any immigrant to say if a line cook if a young chef can become a dragon one day so can you, you just have to remain focused and work hard towards it business-wise in order to become a dragon 
So the journey was great. I loved it. I loved being on it. And when the time had come to move on, then I was willing to move on as well and let go. I feel honored to be the first Indo-Canadian to be able to be on that panel of people with Arlene and Jim and Mike Beckerley and David Shelton. But I'm more proud of the fact that I was the first Indo-Canadian that actually broke the mold and was allowed to be himself and express himself the way he wanted to express himself. And so for me, that is far more important than just doing Dragon's Den or when I did Chop Canada or I did Recipe to Riches or I did Top Chef. To be able to put myself on the plate and express myself and say, this is who I am, wearing my kurtas, wearing my jewelry, was an extremely, extremely beautiful experience. Yeah, yeah. And you set the bar for everybody. You made them believe that they can achieve that as well as we were talking previously as well. So yeah, kudos to you. And, and I've watched that episode the whole season. What would be some top categories of an entrepreneur if you have to list off a couple? First of all, the tenacity and the balls to lose money because I came empty-handed into this country and we did well. And so to be able to take that risk and say, yes, I'm willing to put my heart and soul in it and, and lose it if I have to not hoard the money, but share the money kind of. The other thing is you're going to have 10 failures and one success. And may that success may not even ever come. Success is not a pill that you take at nighttime and in the morning you're successful. It doesn't work that. So you may fail 10 times and you keep failing 10 times. And you just have to brush yourself and get up and do what you need to do. And then the biggest thing for me is that motivation, that creativity cannot go away. So if you're thinking of doing something, you have to constantly see, okay, if this didn't work, then this might work. And if that didn't work, then this may work and this may not work. And it's making a dish in the kitchen. You don't get up in the morning and the dish is perfect. You make the dish, doesn't taste so good. You get back to the drawing board and then you go back and make it again. And then you go back again and you make it again. And after 10 times of tasting really bad food, the 11th time the food tastes delicious. And then you're okay, I got it. So that's how I see entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Keep pushing it every day. As they say, Rome Rome wasn't built in a day, but they kept chipping away at it every single day. Pretty much that. So you you talked about failure. Do you have a favorite failure of yours? A failure that then set you up for success later in your life? I've never thought of it as a failure. I've thought of it as a learning. setback perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, A learning curve, a setback. And I think... One of it was the production facility that we had opened, thinking that people were going to just flock towards the food right away. And the success of Rangoli made me go out and spend a lot of money and buying a piece of land and creating a huge facility. But the cost of running the facility was so high that eventually after six, seven years or eight years, I decided to sell it and and move on from it. And so it took me 10 years to figure out that, okay, I, 
I can't. And it's, it's the same thing with my Shanti as well or anything else. It just was time had come to sharpen my pencils and say, okay, what brought us, what brought me success in the first place? Let's go back to that drawing board again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I guess my question is, if you were to give your 20-year-old self an advice, what would that advice be based on all your life experiences so far? Keep doing exactly what I did. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I did exactly what I wanted to do how I wanted to do, and it's okay if I failed. I'm fine with it at times, but I'm still very successful at certain things. So I would never say that was a failure. It was a learning curve for me. In your role, one of the jobs that you have is to change perception of Indian food for other people, and you do that on a daily. Is there a particular moment that comes to your mind where you were able to change somebody's perception and they were, wow, I never thought Indian food would be this? That happens to me every day. People come in and they ask for butter chicken and chicken tikka masala because that's what they're used to. And then when I get a chance to explain to them that India is not just Punjab, India is Calcutta, India is Kerala, India is Tamil Nadu, India is Uttar Pradesh, India is Madhya Pradesh, India is Karnataka. There's so many different places in in India. We're the largest democracy of food in the world. India is the largest democracy of food. But I think there was a particular moment once um, John Cleese had come in for dinner and he was British and he had a certain idea. He wanted an onion bhaji and he wanted the typical Balti style cuisine from England. And I looked at him and I said, just let me feed you. And if you don't get, you don't have to pay for it. And we at Vidya's fed him and we brought out lots of different dishes for him and he loved it. And he was very happy about it. And I think that moment was, okay, if John Cleese, who's so British, so old world, can change his mind, so can I change people's minds. And sometimes... I find Indians not uh, wanting to accept my food. They think it's too fusiony, but they they have to take it with a grain of salt and say, okay, this is the way it is. This is the way he's cooked it. This is, we're going to enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that reflects out of your cookbooks as well, because I was making that dish. I think it's paneer, bacon, something. Being a public figure, how do you handle the pressure that comes with it? It's not a pressure. It's such an accolade. It's such a great feeling to be recognized for the work that you've done. I would see if I was pressure was if I didn't do anything to achieve it. True. If I didn't do anything to achieve it and it was given to me on a platter, on a fake platter, and then people were, oh my God, this is Vikram Vij. But I feel that I worked hard to get there. So I love to be recognized for my hard work. I want to be recognized for the fact that at Vidya's, we handedly changed the way Indian food is perceived. I want to be able to see this, that not that I've become famous, but more on the fact that look at him, in spite of the fact that he's become famous, he's still so humble and down to earth and we can talk to him at every level. That he's clearing plates, that he's vacuuming the floor, that he's washing the dishes. That humility is very important. It doesn't matter who you are and how much money you have. 
the color of our blood is exactly the same. We eat the same way, our metabolism is exactly the same. So can now never feel above and beyond anybody else. Absolutely. So when you're not cooking, how do you find inspiration and how do you recharge yourself for your culinary creations? You just, even if you're not creating, you're constantly thinking. Yeah. You're constantly coming up with new ideas and, oh, what could I do here? What could I do this? Or how could I do this? Yesterday we were at Myshanti and I was closing down and bringing all the plates from there. And I was, oh, I could use these plates at Vidges and, and create them. So just, you, you have to constantly... Uh, remind yourself that your journey is not ended here. It's not, it's 5 p.m., put your pen down and you're gone. Your journey continues to evolve and, and push the parameters and styles and everything. So you, so you live and breathe it at every single moment. Absolutely. If you could put a message on a billboard for the entire world to see, what would your message be and why? If, I, if it was a big billboard this big, I would just write Namaste. Just Namaste. Because Namaste embodies everything that I believe in. Namaste is, I would fold my hands and say Namaste. Namaste means gratitude. Namaste means thank you. Namaste means hello. Namaste means welcome. Namaste means let's break bread together. I would just say Namaste. Nothing else. I think to me, the word Namaste or Vaheguru or Oh Lord or Salaam Alaikum, anything that just is a form of greeting would be my billboard message. And what everybody derives out of it is up to them. So it doesn't have to say it in Hindi. It can say it in Punjabi. It can say Satsrigal, for example. It can say... Shalom, for example. It can say whatever, but I would just say it as Namaste. I wouldn't even say welcome because Namaste with two folded hands has so much energy and power in it. I don't think people realize it. Just looking at somebody and saying Namaste with the folded hands is I respect you. I bow down to you. I honor you. And that's what I mean. I would just say Namaste. I wouldn't say anything else. Yeah, yeah, that's really what it is. And when you think about it, it's just gratitude and having others, accepting others within your life and within your homes. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, your most favorite book or one book that has inspired you, which one would it be? There are so many great books, but I think A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth would be one of them. Roington Mysteries book, Such a Long Journey was amazing. Shantaram was amazing. So many books. I'm a big book fan. So I love my books. I love reading books. I love having books. I don't think there's any one single book, but I think if you should read one book is my journey autobiography of it, because it encompasses a lot of life lessons in that book. Yeah. Yeah. I'll recommend that to everybody and I'm sure going to jump on it. As well. How do you see the Indian food um, on the global scale within the next five, 10 years? What is your vision with that? I think what's going to happen is that everybody is going to start eating uh, Indian food once a week. And then they're going to eat Chinese and Italian and Vietnamese and Cambodian and Iranian and, and Afghani and, and food from different parts of the world. I think the uh, world is going to become smaller 
an integration of the food. So it won't be just meat and potatoes. It'll be different kinds of foods from different parts. I think tolerances will go up a little bit more because you eat food from different parts of the world. But whereas I see Indian food where it'll actually really go up is when we can get away from the mainstream butter, chicken, tikka, masala and all that stuff and create foods that are more home cooking. There's more Indian food cooked at home than eaten outside with no names to it. When you go to somebody's house in India, it's a dal and chawal or roti or sabji. It has no name. It doesn't say vegetable jalfrezi. It doesn't say shahi paneer. It doesn't say, I have no names to it. So get away from the names. Just go on the dish and the love and the passion that has been put behind that dish. Those are the best meals, the ones cooked at home. So what does the future hold for you, sir? What can we expect from you over the next few years? I think you'll see uh, Vikram uh, re-emerging as uh, Chef Vikram Vij. I'm going to be uh, focused on being a mentor now. I'm going to work towards mentorship. I'm going to take some young chefs, go to the restaurants, give them some ideas. My partner and I are working on this little package on the side where people can call up and say, hey, listen, can you come up? Can you come to us? Tell us exactly what we are doing wrong or what we are doing right or how we can do better than this. A little bit of a consultancy of 30 years of hard work to go back into it and say, create the wine list like this, create this wine list, create this wine list. And I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see most of it of Vikram Vidge as <clears throat> not just as a chef, but a mentor to younger chefs creating and holding their hands and guiding them in the right direction so that they can feel the success and get the success that they want from their own lives that Vikram Vidge yeah. has felt. And that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of Vikram Vidge, not just from the show's point of view, but from actually a mentor point of view. That makes me happy because this show of ours is about mentorship as well and just learning from people. It's been a pleasure. It's been a slice just chatting with you, you know, understanding your journey, your challenges. And uh, I'm sure everyone who is listening today uh, will take tidbits out of it and can make improvements in their life. Before I let you go today, any final words for our listeners? Any final comments? Namaste. And please make sure that no human being, no living being is ever discriminated for either the color of the skin or their beliefs because we are all equal and we are human beings. And with that, I thank you, Ravi, for allowing me to come on to this podcast. And it has been a hoot. You have spoken from your heart. I have spoken and shared my journey. And... I hope the next phase of my journey with me and my partner inspires other people to do better. Thank you. Namaste. That's regard.